Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. We're happy to have you with us for this episode of What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. We've all heard and likely used the phrase, hindsight is 2020. That has double meaning for us today. We're going to try to look back with clear vision at the year 2020 and how the convergence of events that calendar year have left the world, our nation, our families, ourselves, struggling to deal with multiple traumas. In 2020, we were at the height of COVID. We were drowning in divisive politics and overwhelmed by the violent results of social injustice, all at the same time. The fallout has been real, and it continues. But we as humans do have the capacity to recover. And today's guest has put together a prescription for us to follow. Dr. Victor Carrion is the John A. Turner, M.D. professor and vice chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. He's a faculty member of both Stanford University School of Medicine and Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, as well as the director of the Stanford Early Life Stress and Resilience Program. He's got three decades dedicated to researching and treating the impact of stress and trauma on young developing minds. Dr. Carrion has developed a treatment called Q-Centered Therapy. He's investigating the positive and preventative impacts of a yoga and mindfulness curriculum in schools, and he's authored and co-authored books on both subjects. He's here today to walk us through his prescription for nations from the science of healing from trauma. Dr. Victor Carrion, welcome back to What Makes Up Your Mind. Thank you so much for having me over. It's a great time to discuss your prescription for addressing national trauma. As you laid out in your document, we have come through just a profound year. I wanted to read something that you wrote. I think it, it really sets us off on this. You wrote that if the experience of 9-11 caused us to lose our innocence as a nation, 2020 challenged our healthy social and emotional development. Tell me what you mean by that. I believe that as, as an individual, systems also have a natural course to their development. And our young country uh, has gone through the laws of innocence, uh, as I said in 9-11, in I believe, and, and still has more development to do. And I, and I think that the issues that we sometimes face in adolescence about seeing the reality of life or, you know, getting to learn that our parents are not as perfect <laughs> as we thought they were, uh, we also have to deal with as, as a nation. So we are starting to see our imperfections and we're starting to get in touch with our own history. Discuss a little bit for us about the confluence of crises that made 2020 so unique. None of this was sudden, except for the pandemic. That was unexpected. But as you discussed in your paper, 
uh, a lot of this we have been making ourselves, these, these collective traumas, for quite a while. Yes, and, and some will even challenge that the pandemic was also uh, in the horizon, right? And in some circles, people actually could see that the way that we were dealing with climate change, for example, and the way that we were dealing with taking care of animals, that would lead to conditions like this. Other pandemics have also come through uh, animal lines. So yes, some events were very clear, like, like the pandemic, but there's other traumas that we experience. So let, let's start by how do we define a trauma? And trauma is something that threatens our life and threatens our well-being. And in that way, the, the pandemic became, it became a very clear threat to our lives, to our livelihood, and, and to the way that we live. Other traumas were the political environment that we were living at the same time being an election year. There was a very, very strong divide. And usually one can understand being a two-party political system that the people are going to have different opinions and different views. But I have never felt uh, like I felt this year in, in terms of the divisions that we had where families were not talking to each other because of political reasons, for example. And then something that has been a very historical trauma that we've experienced as social injustice just was made more poignant and more clear this year. So that one has always been there, but, but it was also added to this. And it's not only like these were the only three traumas, the usual culprits of natural disasters, uh, homelessness, violence, hate crimes, all of these things were still also there. So I usually talk about this backpack, right, where we carry the stressors and the events that we experience. And the backpack became really heavy for the nation this year. And individuals carry backpacks as well as our collective national backpack. Correct. Correct. And, and the thing is that we can. We can carry a backpack, right, through the process of what we call homeostasis, in the same way that we regulate our temperature, we can regulate stress. And in fact, uh, sometimes stress is even necessary for normal development, including sometimes infection, so that we can develop our immune system and, and so forth. But what happens is that if you're five, six, seven, if you're young, if you don't have enough coping tools, or if you're older and you don't have um, really the resources that are necessary to to carry this heavy weight, it can really impact your health and it can impact your function. I think stress in times of crisis is expected, but could you talk a little bit more about the role that that plays, good and bad, and how we distinguish individually and collectively? Uh, and, and maybe that plays back into our identifying trauma. Do we often not recognize something that we've gone through as trauma if it's if it's a slow compounding event rather than a specific life-threatening event? Yes, we, we certainly sometimes um, don't notice the accumulation of stressors that may be traumatic. So if we think of stress, we have to think of an inverted U-curve shape where the first part of the curve with a little stress, what in psychology is called U-stress, it's actually improvement in health and better functioning, right? 
put it up to an optimal point in that curve. And after that optimal point, what we see is a decline, a decline in health, a decline in functioning, uh, more distress. And that's where traumatic stress lives. And sometimes we notice because our function changes, but sometimes our psychology wants to pretend that that didn't happen. So then we go into a mode of avoidance. And it's very important that we don't do that. It's very important that we actually acknowledge the experience, build a narrative of, uh, around what we experience and incorporate that into our lives. So for example, in times like now, when we're going through a transition, there's this feeling of really immediately wanting to go out there, reclaim our previous normal lives and, and do everything, which is understandable, right? But, but it carries the risk of forgetting too quickly what happened. And if we forget too quickly what happened, the body doesn't forget the, the stressors and, and that what we call the allostatic load, which is the accumulation of those stressors, uh, really still has an impact on our body and in, in our psyche as well. That makes perfect sense. If I think we could all recognize that in ourselves as individuals or in another individual. But collectively as a nation, you mentioned, you know, the social inequities, the racial issues, a more violent society, divisions. How are we going to recognize when our allostatic load or our backpack is just way too full? We're not very good as humans and certainly not as Americans in choosing prevention rather than response. So what do we look for or are we already seeing it, uh, signs of this to respond to? I think what, what's important is to think about our, how capable we are of having resilience. And, and how to really engage in recovery. And this is something that I see every day in, in the children that I treat, that if they acknowledge what happened, if they build a narrative, if they go through these steps that we call Q-Center therapy, they, they improve and, and they can overcome the traumatic experience and, and not only be resilient, but be uh, adaptive which means that you bounce back, but you don't only bounce back to where you were, you bounce back to a better place because now you're bouncing back with the experience of what you had. And I think as a nation, we should strive for that. It's, it's, not, it's not going back to where we were, right? Because then everything that happened could happen again. So going back to a place that is better, going back to the, a place with the knowledge of how we got here and going back to a place where we can actually learn from the experience and be at a better place. And, and if a child can do that, if I see that every day, right, in my clinic, I think as a nation, we can do it. We can go through the same steps of Q-Center therapy and, and process the, the traumatic experiences of 2020. We're gonna go through those coping skills and Q-centered therapy and your actual prescription for what we should be doing. But I wanted to stay a little bit with just a self-analysis of our own development or uh, places where our development may be a little off track. And I found it really interesting in your document, the prescription for national trauma and recovery from it. Under political trauma, you were talking about reproachment. 
this is a developmental marker. And that term is also now being used, as you say, in political circles, relations between nations. Can you explain what reproachment is and make that connection between the individual and what we're seeing politically in society? Yes, this is a term coined by an Austrian psychoanalyst, Margaret Mahler. There comes a point in a child's life, very early life, toddler, right, where we need to differentiate ourselves from those that are taking care of us. Uh, we kind of read our caretakers as an extension of us or us as an extension of them. So we go and explore, we go and play, and we look back, and that caretaker is still there. We still feel safe. We still feel secure, right, in that that person is there. But then there comes a moment that we don't see them, and we completely panic <laughs> because that security is gone, and that, that other part of us is gone. Because if you don't see it, it's not there, right? It's very black and white. And then they come back and then you get happy again. But there comes a developmental stage where your security has grown to a degree and, and also your own cognitive abilities have grown to a degree that when you don't see the person there, you still know that they are there. So you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't panic. And this is a developmental stage in life that really helps us understand that things in life are not so black and white, that there is a gray zone. If we don't go through that stage in life in an appropriate way, we are going to remain in that black and white thinking mode and, and things would be very extreme. And this leads to extreme views. And this can create disorders individually, personality disorders. So I, I think what we see as a nation is that if we're going to divide ourselves into extreme views, we're really behaving in a black and white pattern when the reality and the truth and the science and everything operates more in the gray zone. And we need to be comfortable in the gray zone. You mentioned that the pandemic was a real threat. We saw, we could recognize that as a real physical threat to our health and our very survival. But what you're describing in the failure of us as individuals and as a nation to recognize our reproachment issues or, or failure to develop in this area, that is also a, a threat to our survival collectively as, as we know ourselves as a cohesive nation, don't you think? Uh, certainly, certainly, because we we don't operate individually. We're part of the connective tissue of of the whole nation. We are really social animals, which is part of the reason why this isolation was so difficult as well, because we were basically asking ourselves to to not think of our primate nature, which is to engage with others and be isolated. And, and these carry a lot of messages at different developmental levels, right? So for example, a very young child thinks very concretely. So for them to be isolated and be told that they cannot go out or they cannot play with a friend, the first thing that the child think is there's something wrong with me, right? Or there's something wrong with my friend that we cannot engage. 
So that is very scary when you are at that uh, developmental stage. But it's also an opportunity, it's an opportunity to teach citizenship uh, to a child, to tell a child, well, actually, no, what's happening is that we are taking care of your friend, we're taking care of you by doing this sacrifice that we're doing right now, we're taking care of the community in general, and then the child can start learning how they can do things for others as well. I'm imagining that in your practice, you see a lot of uh, cases in which there may be an initial trauma that brings you into the picture to help, but that that particular trauma also lays bare other layers of issues that are inhibiting development in a child. And yeah, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but more than than a child, it uh, is actually a very good observation that that I want to underscore because that was my experience after, well, after many, many uh, natural disasters, but I remember the Haiti earthquake. And when I went there after the earthquake, you know, I'll prepare to talk about this earthquake, the population and the nation really want, had so much more to talk about. Yes. You know, they wanted to talk about uh, the sexual trauma that they were experiencing, the lack of education that they were experiencing, the injustices that they were experiencing, and that in a way the earthquake just put some light into all of these issues. And then in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, it was very similar. They, many people wanted to talk about other traumas other than the experience of the natural disaster. So, so you're totally right. Sometimes what a trauma does is that it opens the door to see that accumulated allostatic load. And that's, that's what the pandemic has done, yes? In a way, definitely. In a way, um, I, I think that the pandemic has its, its real direct traumatic causes for the people that have lost livelihood and have lost lives, right? There's been a lot of loss and a lot of grief associated with the pandemic. But then it also has shed light into the other experiences that that we've had. Yes, yeah, inequity, uh, social issues, racial issues, health inequity, all kinds of things that as a nation we need to be aware of if we want to strengthen ourselves internally. So I think it's a good time as, as we've laid out what we're all suffering with right now to talk about the solutions because that's really the point of this uh, very informative document, and that is to make us aware of the coping skills we do have, how to enhance them, but as a nation where we should be investing and almost like breaking a bone, making these places, helping them heal and making them stronger. So let's start with Q-centered therapy and what that is, because this is something you've developed and that you use in your practice with children, and we could be doing this as a nation as well. So what... What I notice is that children were compartmentalizing a little bit too much and that this was really getting in the way of their recovery from trauma. So they may know the history that happened to them. They may know what some of the events were. They may know feelings that they have associated or, or feelings that they are having right now, let's say fear, sadness, anger. And they know behaviors they're doing that are getting them in trouble, but they don't see the association between all of those. They don't understand that because something happened that made them develop some 
feelings that now makes them make them do some behaviors. They don't see those connections. So we wanted to develop something that would help uh, the child make those connections. Um, and we wanted the child to feel empowered, empowered through knowledge, because if we were going to build a coping toolbox for the child to have for the rest of their lives, the main tool is themselves, right? Wherever they go, that's where they are. And that's where their body is going to be. That's where their mind is going to be. So how can they be best equipped to be their main agent of change? And, and those were some of the, the reasons why we developed the Q-Center therapy. And what specific things should we be looking at? Specific actions of healing as we come out of this. Uh, we're going to talk about the role of government and, and public policy and how to bolster systems or create new systems of support. But what should we be looking for in ourselves or in our communities that are either signs of this trauma playing out or specific ac actions of healing that we can not only engage in, but kind of help promote? Yeah, the, the first thing is we've, we've already touched on it, which is uh, not avoid, right? To recognize that what happened, happened. Uh, we, we have a saying in my team that post-traumatic stress disorder feeds on avoidance. So the more we avoid, the higher the chances that we are going to develop dysfunction in the form of post-traumatic stress. So, so we need to help the child acknowledge the experience and acknowledge what happened. And, and sometimes they don't even know, right? They don't know what a trauma is. They don't know what a post-traumatic stress is. They sometimes may think of themselves in negative ways, like they're a problem or they're bad or they're crazy, right? So, so the, first, the first step is to really educate educate the child in terms of what is trauma? How do we handle trauma? So all of the things that we've been talking about today, we'd really talk about them with the child. And in that way, what happens is that the child learns to depathologize himself or herself, understanding that, that many of the things they're experiencing are normal human reactions to when something threatens your life or when, or, or when something overcomes your coping abilities. So that is the first thing. The first thing is to really acknowledge what happened. Healthfully, how to do that healthfully, as you mentioned, sometimes a child or any person uh, can say to themselves, oh gosh, this is wrong with me. I'm not doing this correctly or I made this error. And as a nation, we can watch the news and look at ourselves and be very discouraged. So, you know, there's a healthful way of, of assessing oneself and one's community. And then there's an unhealthful way of doing it. Well, and we also talked about, about the opportunity that this pandemic has given us to learn about the social ills that, that we have. If we avoid the thoughts of the pandemic, if we avoid the thoughts of being isolated for a year, that carries the risk of really maintaining all of those other problems because discourse about them have not happened. 
And it is very tempting to do that. It is, you know, sometimes you, you can ask yourself, oh my God, how can we are still dealing with the same problem? And, and the reason is because we haven't dealt with it, because we have ignored it at times, uh, we have uh, avoided it, we didn't want to acknowledge it or, or talk about it. So hence the importance of, of really building a narrative, building a story about the experience. That narrative is such a fascinating topic. But before we get to it, I want to stay with education for just a moment, because I think we have to talk about the fact that if we're going to do self-analysis as a nation, this influences policymaking. We have to look at the education system and we have to look at our health system. What is there in our toolbox and what is not that you think should be there? Yes, definitely. When we mention education as a first step, in healing, it shows you the importance of, of how we really need to prioritize education. And I think many of us would think that we don't, that we actually don't prioritize education when we have a lot of children that struggle with schooling, a lot of children didn't have enough internet access this past year to access their classes, when there were no resources for schools. I mean, the, some of that is changing now, but we really have to also think that many of the other problems that we have, like the political divisions or, or family disruptions or, or things like that, come as a result also of, of not having a good fundamental strong education from the start. That includes mental health access in schools, a more equitable health system uh, in general to address these things. So we're talking about nuts and bolts infrastructure that can help the psychological health of our nation if we, if we invest in it. Yes. And, and then that merges into this toolbox that we help children create. So we usually create uh, during their therapy this toolbox where they could uh, coping mechanisms that have helped them or that we teach them, uh, deep breathing, positive thinking, different things they do, right? Playing music, things that help them. So, so the thought is, well, what would be a coping toolbox for a nation as after they receive this first fundamental primary education and before they engage in a process of narrative because then they have tools to be able to address the emotional content. And the things that you're mentioning will definitely go there, right? How are we managing health when, when two thirds of our children have no access to mental health, children that need mental health, two thirds of them don't have access to it. Uh, we're having a problem, right? That's not a good tool for the nation, that that tool that is necessary has not been developed. So what are the roadblocks? What are the, these things need to be identified? Why are we in that situation where A, so much mental health is needed and B, such little resources are available? What do you say to the pushback to those who might say, look, what we need is to educate these kids to get a job when they get out of school, or what we need to do is get people to work, or we just need to get on with it. We're Americans, we've got bootstraps and, and all this, you know, 
art well, and, and music yeah. and, and uh, mm-hmm. telling our narrative. How do you push back against that as a mental health professional who knows the science of the importance of this? So you know what? I will not push back. I would totally agree with them. <laughs> I, I would say, yes, they definitely need to be educated. They definitely need a job. They definitely need to move forward. Uh, but the solutions that we present are not a, they're, they are multiple prong, right? It doesn't mean that a job will address the mental health issues of the individual. Uh, so that means that, yes, you need a job, and that will definitely help uh, in terms of your productivity, your social standing, your livelihood. But then your health also needs to be taken care of. And if that job that you have doesn't give you good, good health coverage, if, if the insurance that is provided doesn't cover for what your needs are, then those issues need to be addressed as well. So I would say, yes, we need to do those things, but it's not, it's not a one-line solution. We have to do multiple lines here, and all I'm doing is shedding light into the other areas that also need to be addressed. And what's the importance of, you've, you've mentioned our narrative a few times, and finally we're going to get to it because I think it's a fascinating part of all of this, of the healing and of self-analysis. So basically we need to tell our story is what you're saying, but our story is so diverse in terms of each of our experiences, individual experiences collectively as a nation. Why is it important? Why is it important then to reassess that narrative at times to make sure that we're looking back correctly? Um, And how do we, how do we begin to put that together? Yes. um, Because a narrative is important because a narrative it's a story, but it's, it's also the process of creating the story. As, as you start telling the story, as we as a nation start describing, right, what we experienced this year, we are going to notice imperfections in the story. We're going to notice that there are gaps. There are things that we either don't remember or things that we're not sure if they really happen or not. We're not that clear as to what feeling we associated with what was happening. And, and, and what happens during the narrative is that you actually find the words to describe those experiences. We all need to incorporate our experiences into our history as individuals and as a nation. And if we don't incorporate it verbally, we will incorporate it with an interrupted memory or emotionally. So that means that when we retrieve the memory, when there's a trigger that makes us retrieve the memory, what we will retrieve is that, a a story that makes no sense because it has too many gaps or you know, the emotional reaction, but not the words to it. So what we uh, do during the process of a narrative is that we build the words that describe the experience so that when we can encode them into our memory appropriately and incorporate them into our history so that when we retrieve them, that's what we retrieve. We retrieve a story that says, I went through the pandemic of 2020 and I went through X, Y, 
and see, and this is what I did, and I'm and I survived. I'm a survivor of this experience. And and that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build a story like that. And and this is an individual process, but it's also a universal process because we all had an universal experience and we all had individual experiences. And much of our story will be documented by historians, by artists, by journalists, but that will be the universal, the universal piece of this. We need to find what our individual role was as part of that universal story. So they're both important, the individual and the universal. And you'd like to see a national repository for where our stories go so that we can avoid revisionist history down the line. Definitely. Definitely. So as we kind of come to the conclusion of this talk, and I hope we do more about this because we're, we're going to learn so much more about ourselves and about what we actually did go through as, as we have incremental time away from it, as it's in our rearview mirror. But... All of this should be building toward better responses to trauma and, and our resilience. Isn't that kind of what we're going for with being aware of the need for these coping tools? Definitely. And can we go to a better place than we were? We have gone through trauma before. Uh, we've gone through World War II. We went through 9-11, the Great Depression, all, all these experiences. And in some way, we have recovered in part. What this process that we're discussing describes is what that some way was. <laughs> and we identified exactly what we did. And what we did was parts of what we are talking about. But there are remnants. There are still hate crimes associated with 9-11. You know, there are still impacts of hate crimes associated with World War II. How can we then maximize what where we're going to be after this experience after this trauma and and basically what we're saying is well there's this number of steps to do it you know acknowledge it create a coping tools build a narrative revisit that narrative expose yourself to cues and there's classical conditioning that we have not talked about, but it's associated very much with this as well in, in terms of our sensitivity to cues and how we respond to them. How are we going to respond for the years to come on things that are triggers or reminders of what we just went through? That's going to be dictated on this period of time now and how we actually process that experience. Dr. Victor Carrion, I thank you very much for sharing this prescription with us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Dr. Victor Carrion is the John A. Turner, M.D., professor and vice chair of the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's also the director of the Stanford Early Life Stress and Resilience Program. You can learn all about his work, including Q-Centered Therapy, and read his full Prescription for Nations from the Science of Healing from Trauma by going to the links in our program notes. We do hope this program on our shared experiences and steps for recovery has been helpful to you. And we hope you'll join us again for What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health 
from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind? Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.